Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast, going through a song of ice and fire, one chapter. I'm your host Jeff, better known as Bitter Fish, and I'm your other host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 150th episode of the Not a Cast, titled. The Tree of Life, an analysis of A Clash of Kings, Brand 7, in which Bran Stark leaves his home, his childhood, and the book behind as we, on the Nauticast podcast, reach the end of A Clash of Kings. You know, that worked out. Our 100th episode was a brand chapter, and our 150th episode is a brand chapter. That's just, that's nice round numbers. We'll have to, like, redo the entire Order of a Storm of Swords to make sure we're always landing on brand chapters for round numbers from now on. Yes. This is, my, this is my commandment. Agreed. I'm with you 100%. Just brilliant symmetry on our parts, <laughs> right? We just do, we exactly. happened to plan out we were doing four Davos episodes and 18 Catelyn episodes for Catelyn 3 and 4. <laughs> it was all for this. All part of the plan, we right? We planned it out just like George. We planned it out all ahead of time. <laughs> Aren't we smart? Mm-hmm. Anywho, uh, we're very excited to uh, to have a guest on for this final chapter in The Clash of Kings. I guess we've had on before for a brand chapter, no less, way back in book one. Please welcome back to the Nauticast, Manu. Thank you so much for coming back on the, the Nauticast. Hey, thank you guys. I'm Manu, better known as Manuclear Bomb, and I'm greatly humbled to be back joining you fine gentlemen once again. You may remember me from such episodes as Brand 4 from A Game of Thrones or my little Metal Gear Solid chat with Emmett a couple months back, and you can get more of that amazing Metal Gear Solid coverage over at my podcast, Podcast Sans Frontieres. Yes, it's French. Yes, we're fancy. Podcast okay, so it's Sans Frontieres because I said Frontiers the last time as, as a good old American, so that was that was my 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 pride and my shame. Your, that little cowboy twang <laughs> on it that works too. It was really bad SEO because Metal Gear nor Solid appear anywhere in our podcast title, so we're really hoping people pick up the. It's based off uh, Military Sans Frontieres, which is a organization that Big Boss has in the game Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, yada yada yada, but. Yeah, we tried to go with a clever title, but not big on the SEO there. <laughs> I think it's great. So I've never played the games, but I am listening to the podcast and I encourage all of you folks to listen to Manu's podcast. It is excellent and well worth your time, uh, if not anything, because Manu is a super person and we really appreciate him coming back to join us for our final episode on Onto Clash Kings and our final brand episode for Clash Kings, both at the same time. So, before we proceed onward into the episode proper, we wanted to talk a little bit about what happens next on the Nauticast podcast. Again, thank you all so much to that you've been listening to us for over three years now. It's, it's kind of amazing to us that we started in January 2018, and you all are still listening to us here in April 2021. That's very... Um, it, it means a lot to me, so, so thank you. And it means a lot to both of us. It's not just me. It's also to Emmett as well. Now, I, I, I am excited as to get into A Storm of Swords, as most of you probably are. Um, but unfortunately for me, I am going to have to take a leave of absence from the podcast for work-related reasons for a few months. So that I'm not leaving the podcast. I am going to be back, but I do have to take a leave of absence for work for a few months. My plan is to be back and podcasting with you all by August 2021. But that means we're not going to immediately jump into A Storm of Swords in a few weeks. Very sad. That said, for all of our $5 poor fellow and above patrons, we'll have one final episode coming your way, which is our wrap-up episode in which we review A Clash of Kings in totality and talk about what we're looking forward to in A Storm of Swords. I will definitely be sad and will miss 
very many of you, most of you, all of you, whatever. For those who watch our weekly live streams, I, I don't know what the future holds for them yet. I do hope we can continue doing live streams when I'm able to resume podcasting, but I can't make any promises. So to sum up, we'll be taking a few months off of our regular chapter by chapter episodes and our plan is to resume in August 2021 and we can maybe do live streams then. But that doesn't mean that the podcast is ceasing production for the next few months. We are gonna live on. Yep, you still got me to deal with, unfortunately, <laughs> folks. I'm so sorry for all of you. While Jeff is away, I'm still going to be doing weekly episodes with our rotating guest hosts. Every week I'm going to have someone else on to talk about different topics. Sometimes we're going to be talking about something in A Song of Ice and Fire, sometimes not. I'm also going to be doing a bunch of kind of text posts and audio posts on my own whenever I'm feeling that day and that week. Stuff I'm listening to or watching or thinking about or would just like to discuss with everyone. So I'm going to be doing that for patrons. Maybe some of them release for the general public. If it's popular, we'll see. But overall, I just want to agree with what Jeff said, that we're just we're so gratified and happy that we've had so many people uh, listening and supporting and talking about our podcast over the last few years, and that we are we are so uh, excited to keep that going with the Storm of Swords when Jeff returns. And I just want to take the opportunity, not that I ever do this, to express my love for Jeff <laughs> oh. and just my happiness that I've got to do this with him over the last few years. It's just it's a, such a delight to to share mental and emotional space with you, sir, and to collaborate with you and work on this every week. So I'm going to miss that. But I'm very excited to have you back with it when you are, and I just uh, we, we we look forward to welcoming you back, all of us. I know that. So everyone, everyone, keep Jeff in their thoughts, you know, for a little just bit, I guess, for a couple of days. He's Jeff. I mean, don't, you know, don't just, as little as of headspace. Don't as like possible. change any plans no, or anything. No. But you know, don't feel any emotions. Just you know, just be like you know, okay, I, yeah, he's he's gone. It's fine. It's, you know, we're gonna be fine. We'll be back in, in August in no time. So. It's, uh, I, I appreciate... I, you I, won't have time to miss them. Right, exactly. You're barely going barely gonna to be gone before you're like, eh, whatever. So I, I, I appreciate... If I can... Go ahead. Go ahead, Manu. I, if I could speak for the community, we love you, Jeff, and we miss you, and we wish you the best and a happy, swift return. Thank so um, we appreciate all you do, and we love you. We love you both. And if I can be the community surrogate for a moment, <laughs> you know, just want to express that to you. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, we will be back. So it's, it's not going to be a forever thing. It's just going to be a for a few months thing. So if you're listening to this episode, you know, in July or August 2021, you're like, huh, what are they talking about? It's not even going to matter to you at that point. But for those of you who are listening to us on a weekly by weekly basis, we will uh, be back in a few months and I will miss you all. So thank you. As always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark M., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Fort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised. Lord Jake assisted to the hand of the king. Lady Zena Valyrian. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dayton, Prince Bregar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Lawrence, Prince of Dorne. Kelly, Ward the Eastern Bishops of Old Bay of Crabs. Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds. The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos. Lord Andrew, the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God. Sir Sorsa Delica. Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Ambassador of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems, Oliver, the waiter for T-Wow, A.A. Ron, Damp Hair, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron, Crow's Eye, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the first of her name, Princess Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Deputy of the Great, Game of Thrones, Portions of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Lugus, Sir Christoph Lugus, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, The Dead Shipper Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Sark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Harren Hall, Ola, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat, Ironwood, the Blood Royal, and Guardian of the Bone Way. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden. Lord Paramount, the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir, Sir Max, Lord Claire, the Constitutional Guard. Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms. Lady of Starfall, Warness of the South, and the Patron of Free Wheeling Bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate. Lord Kristoff of Arendelle, Official Ice Master and Deliver. The Valiant, Pungent, Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to his Ginger Sweet Love Queen, Anna. And Lord Sir Septon Brothers. Thank you to all of our small council patrons. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, FC7, every episode will potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devils, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from the Black Pearl of the Troy, a Kingsguard patron who asks, Howdy, if anyone can answer, why does the fandom refer to Rhaegar's son slash Vagon slash Young Grift as Aegon Sixth? As far as I can tell, members of royal families who are in line to lead don't get their regnal number until they've had their coronation. He's certainly not the sixth Aegon in existence, and he's not even the sixth Aegon to have been eligible to rule via primogeniture. So do we just refer to him as sixth as shorthand so everyone knows who we're talking about? Uh, I'll throw it over to our guest. What do you think about that, Manu? I feel like I was ill-prepared last time I was on for a listener question, back when you guys did two or three per episode. Oh, gosh, I remember that. And I'm, and I'm sorry that I don't have anything better today because everyone I listen to pretty much just calls him Fagon or more recently Young Grift. Um, I think specifically I picked it up from you guys, so thank you for that, I guess. Um, I guess maybe to some extent some people assume a crowning is forthcoming in the Winds of Winter. Um, I think that kind of narratively makes sense for early on in winds especially if they take storm storm's end and declare Aegon as um the true heir to the iron throne um i think maybe some people consider that a done deal i never like to do that with george um but i can see like it's after the first act of the winds of winter i can see Aegon uh having been crowned officially in the eyes of gods and men so to speak so that's my best guess at it I'm with you. I think it's just shorthand to distinguish Aegon the fifth from Aegon the from Aegon the sixth from Aegon the fifth from Aegon the fourth and the third and the second and the first. So it's it's just shorthand typically. And and I think I think the way like people use it, it's not actually used in the novels itself. It's he's referred to as Young Griff or Prince Aegon when we get to the lost the, the lost Lord, and uh, he's referred to Prince Aegon in the the Griffin Reborn that that second John Connington chapter. So it's a it's it's I think it's just simply shorthand, but I think it's it's effective in communicating meaning, which is what you're supposed to do when you create a shorthand for something. I don't really have a lot more to add to that one, but I do think it's interesting that 
John, if his name actually is Aegon, and I do think it actually is Aegon, that he would potentially be the sixth or the seventh. I don't know if George was going for a seventh thing because seven is a holy number in Westeros because of the faith of the seven and the seven gods and the seven aspects of God, rather. I don't know. But I think Aegon the sixth is supposed to be just like kind of just a little bit short of Aegon the seventh being Jon Snow being the one who's actually the one worth a goddamn at the end. I agree. It does kind of set up John as the, as the actual placeholder, so to speak, uh, that, that that young Grift is, is more auditioning for. And yeah, the the, yeah, the Golden Company does throw around like Aegon, sixth of his name. And the first Aegon took Westeros without eunuchs. Why shouldn't the sixth Aegon do the same? And that does kind <laughs> of elide all those other Aegons. But that is kind of a political statement on their part. that they, They're trying to set up a narrative in which this was always obviously the rightful heir and this kid was always alive. So, yeah, I think, yeah, it does, he's, he's a character who is not popular in the first place and also is kind of difficult to talk about for this reason, but I kind of like that George sets it up that way, that he's such a, there's just no real to the kid, because that any name you want to use to talk about him is just not quite right, so, because there's nothing there at all. So, I, li- I like that as a concept, even though, we, obviously, I think it's good to have John Connington there as kind of the dramatic center of that plot, because otherwise I think there would be, I think a, it would be a very kind of academic uh, kind of exercise that storyline uh, for reasons like this, but it is a uh, it is true. Like there's been tons of Egon, so I think that is just we seize on that, so we don't have to be constantly asking each other. Wait, what, what, you're talking about that kid with the blue hair, dance with dragons? Right. Okay, yeah, yeah, now yeah. we can move on and have a conversation. We don't want to be doing that constantly. There's already enough freaking characters in this in the story. And enough goddamn Egons too. And enough uh, Egons it- and Brandons. We got to clarify these things sometimes. Exactly. Andrew Mumford in our chat did bring up a really interesting parallel, and he says that the six works because he's the six Black Fire Rebellion, the sixth house to enter the War of the Five sure. Kings, and his backstory is basically the plot of the Omen, which I have not seen, so I'll just assume is true. Is that true? I don't know. The plot of the Omen? Um, I guess, although he's not, like, <laughs> scary, like the Omen kid is, but, like, in terms of being, you know, the, the, the seed dropped elsewhere, certainly. Jeez, I hope I hope you don't start seeing like wolves and a bunch of like hanged nurses around young Griff and, and wins. That's gonna be a twist. Uh, I would love The Omen is one of those movies I watched when I was far too young. Like the the guy a guy gets beheaded in that movie and I still see it when I blink. Uh, oh wow! That's just that's a, that's it's a, a wonderful wonderful movie. I recommend everyone. Anywho. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lady Black Pearl of Detroit, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions we answer here on the Not A Cast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where you can get show notes, free merch, access to the Not A Slack at our two highest tiers, and bonus episodes like our upcoming episode in which we review A Clash of Kings, talk about how we feel about the book now that we've finished it, our first impressions versus our current impressions, theories that come from this book, our favorite and least favorite storylines, and what we are excited to cover when we start A Storm of Swords in a few months' time. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to do that episode with you, sir. And while I'm sure all of you will be tap dancing your asses over to our Patreon to join up and listen to that episode, of course, we also have 37 other Patreon-only episodes covering a Song of Ice and Fire topics like The Battle of Ice, Character Analysis of Robert, Stannis, and Renly Baratheon, The Tour of Old Volantis, Why the Wind's Winner is Taking So Long to Come Out, our five-part series on The Wind's Winner of the Forsaken, and if that wasn't enough, we also have movie analyses on films cinema like the kingdom of like kingdom of heaven and man of steel and if that wasn't enough we're also 19 chapters deep in yet another chapter by chapter podcast covering george rr R. barton's 1982 vampire novel fever dream so please come over and check out our patreon at patreon.com forward slash notacast a-s-o-i-a-f we would love to have you 
But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with a Bran Stark point of view chapter, Theon Greyjoy had taken Winterfell. Do you all remember that episode we did with Stanford Fraser back in August 2020, nearly a year ago? There may have been a few plot events which happened since that time. Maybe. Let's find out how Bran Stark survived and plans to live on in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Bran 7. The ashes fell like a soft gray snow. He patted over dry needles and brown leaves to the edge of the wood where the pines grew thin. Beyond the open fields, he could see the great piles of man rock stark against the swirling flames. The wind blew hot and rich with the smell of blood and burnt meat so strong he began to slaver. Summer smells things that drive him towards the castle, but there are other things that drive him away. Men, horses, and fire. The last smell was the most dangerous of them all. All the smoke and ash gets into Summer's eyes, and then he sees something interesting. In the sky, Summer saw a great winged snake whose roar was a river of flame. He bared his teeth, but then the snake was gone. Behind the cliffs, tall fires were eating up the stars. Wait a minute, did Summer just see a freaking dragon? More on this later. Fires burn through the night and a crash emanates from the castle. Terrified dogs and horses bark, whine, scream and howl, and among the people wailing, shouts, wild laughter and screams. Summer listens to it all as Shaggy Dog growls. The fires eventually burn out and the noises die down, and the sun also rises. Summer and Shaggy move through the trees and cross fields drawn by the smells of blood and death, but there were no living men to be seen. There were only crows and wild dogs feasting on the slain. They come upon a dying horse, and Shaggy Dog rips out its throat. Summer goes in for a bite, but Shaggy Dog fights him. The wolves roll amidst the grass until Shaggy Dog relents, and Summer emerges dominant. He feeds and then lets Shaggy Dog get his share. The dark place was pulling at him by then, the house of whispers where all men were blind. He could feel its cold fingers on him. The stony smell of it was a whisper up his nose. He struggled against the pool. He did not like the darkness. He was wolf. He was hunter and stalker and slayer, and he belonged with his brothers and sisters in the deep woods, running free beneath the starry sky. Summer sat on his haunches, raised his head, and howled. I will not go, he cried. I am wolf. I will not go. Yet even so in the darkness yet even so the darkness thickened until it covered his eyes and filled his nose and stopped his ears, so he could not see or smell or hear or run. And the grey cliffs were gone, and the dead horse was gone, and his brother was gone, and all was black and still and black and cold and black and dead and black. Bran, a voice was whispering softly, Bran, come back. Come back now, Bran. Bran. Bran closes his third eye and opens his two eyes, the quote unquote blind too. They were in the dark where everyone was blind, but Hodor was holding him, but Hodor was holding him. Mira tells Bran that he was thrashing. What did he see? He saw Winterfell, and it was on fire. Everyone was dead. Mira strokes Bran's face and asks if he wants a drink. He does. So Mira gives him some water. Bran realizes he was hungry, but he ate a summer. Bran asks how long he was out. Three days, said Jojen. The boy had come up softfoot, or perhaps he had been there all along. In this blind black world, Bran could not have said. We were afraid for you. I was with Summer, Bran said. Too long. You'll starve yourself. Mira dribbled a little water down your throat, and we smeared honey on your mouth. But it is not enough. Bran says that he ate while he was in Summer, reiterating that point rather. He even had to fend off a tree cat that was going for an elk that he and Shaggy had eaten. The wolf ate, Jojen said. Not you. Take care, Bran. Remember who you are. He remembered who he was all too well. Bran the boy. Bran the broken. 
better brand the beastling. Was it any wonder he would sooner dream his summer dreams, his wolf dreams? Here, in the chill, damp darkness of the tomb, his third eye had finally opened. He could reach summer whenever he wanted, and once he had even touched ghosts and talked to John, though maybe he had only dreamed that. He could not understand why Jojen was always trying to pull him back now. Bran wonders where Osha is, and Osha replies that she's here with Bran in the dark. Bran thinks he could smell her, but all of them smell bad down here in the dark. Osha reports that she urinated on the foot of a dead Stark king last night, or this morning. It's hard to tell in the dark what time of day it was. All they did down the crypt since they arrived was sleep, eat, and talk in whispers, though Rickon and Hodor were hard to keep quiet. Bran reports to Osha that he saw Winterfell burning, and Osha says, it was only a dream. No, Bran replies, it was a wolf dream. He smelled the fire and the blood of men, horses and dogs. They need to go see what's up. But Osha says she's only got one set of skin. She'd prefer to keep that skin rather than have Theon whip it off her. But Beera says she'll go. She lights a torch, waking Rickon up. When the shadows moved, it looked for an instant as if the dead were rising as well. Lyanna and Brandon, Lord Rickard Stark, their father, Lord, Lord Edwile, his father, Lord William and his brother Artos the Implacable, Lord Donner and Lord Baron and Lord Rodwell, one-eyed Lord Jonal, Lord Barth and Lord Brandon and Lord Cregan who had fought the Dragon Knight. On their stone chairs, they sat with stone wolves at their feet. This was where they came when the warmth had seeped out of their bodies. This was the dark hall of the dead where the living feared to tread. And in the mouth of the empty tomb that waited for Lord Eddard Stark, beneath his stately granite likeness, the six fugitives huddled round their little cache of bread and water and dried meat. Osha says they don't have a lot of food left. They need to go into the castle to steal some food, or else they'd be down to eating Hodor, which, um, okay. Osha wonders if it's day or night, and Bran says it's day, but it will look dark due to the smoke. When Osha questions him, Brandon briefly works summer one last time and sees the castle with its pillars and drifting gray smoke and all of the bodies floating in the moat. He's certain it's day. Osha says she'll risk looking around, but she wants everyone to stay behind her. Rickon wants to know if they're going home to see Shaggy, and Bran reassures his brother that they are, but they have to be quiet. Mira straps Bran's wicker basket to Hodor's back and puts Bran into it. Bran feels sad and strange. He knows what's waiting for them, but he's still afraid. He then looks at his dad's crypt statue. It seemed to Bran that there was a sadness in Lord Eddard's eyes, as if he did not want them to go. We have to, Bran thought. It's time. Osha leads the way with her spear in one hand and the torch in the other. She straps a sword to her back, specifically Lord Rickard Stark's blade, while Bran takes his uncle Brandon's sword. He wouldn't be able to use it, but the sword felt good in his hands. He thinks this was a game as their footsteps echo through the crypts. The shadows behind them swallowed his father as the shadows ahead retreated to unveil other statues. No mere lords these, but the old kings of the north. On their brows they wore stone crowns. Torin Stark, the king who knelt. Edwin, the spring king. Theon Stark, the hungry wolf. Brandon the burner and Brandon the shipwright. Jorah and Jonas. Brandon the bad. Walton the moon king. Ederion the bridegroom. Iron, Benjamin the Sweet, and Benjamin the Bitter, King Edric Snowbeard. Their faces were stern and strong, and some of them had done terrible things, but they were Starks, every one. And Bran knew all their tales. He had never feared the Crips. They were part of his home, and who he was. And he had always known that one day he would lie here too. But now, he was not so certain. If I go up, will I ever come back down? Where will I go when I die? It's getting pretty fucking hard not to quote the, this whole chapter but we gotta press on when they get to the stairs osha tells them to wait as she feels her way up the stairs 
Hodor says, ho, Dwar, nervously. Bran had hated hiding down here, but now he's scared to emerge into the light. There was safety in darkness, a feeling that their enemies could never find them. And the Stark Crypt Lords had made Bran feel brave. He knew they were there, even when he couldn't see them, and that makes him feel safe. They wait a long while as Rickon and Hodor grow nervous and anxious before Osha returns and reports that the door is blocked. She can't move it. Bran suggests Hodor move the door, and Osha says yes, he should hold the door. So Hodor goes to hold the door, and they all move up the narrow steps. When they reach the top, Osha tries to push the door one more time, but it doesn't move. So Hodor gets his shot. They move Bran out of the basket, and Bran commands Hodor to open the door by holding it. Is this joke getting old? Probably. The huge stable boy put both hands flat on the door, pushed and grunted. Hodor? He slammed a fist against the wood and did not so much as jump. Hodor! Use your back, urged Bran, and your legs. So Hodor presses his body against the door and shoves over and over again, shouting, Hodor, as the wood splinters. And, the Bran, and then Bran hears a rumble and light floods into the crypt, blinding Bran momentarily. The door crashes open and Bran then hears the sound of shifting stone. Osha pokes her spear through as Hodor shoves the door all the way open. Holding it, right? Okay, I've done. Mira and Jojen take Bran up the last few stairs. The sky was gray and the smoke was all around them. They find themselves in the shadow of the first keep as stones and shattered gargoyles are lying on the ground. Bran thinks they fell in the same place as them. He wonders how he survived his own fall. But then they see their first body under one of the stones with, co with crows pecking at it. Bran doesn't know who that person had been. The first keep had not been used for many hundreds of years, but now it was more a shell than ever. The floors had burned inside him and all the beams. Where the walls had fallen away, they could see right into the rooms, even into the privy. Yet behind, the broken tower still stood, no more burned than before. Jojen Reed was coughing from the smoke. Take me home, Rickon demanded. I want to be home! Hodor stomped in a circle. Hodor, he whimpered in a small voice. They stood huddled together with ruin and death all around them. Osha notes that they made enough noise to wake a dragon, but no one's around, just like Bran dreamed. But suddenly there's a noise and Osha whirls around with a spear in hand. Thankfully, it turns out to be not only none other than Summer and Shaggy Dog as they make their way over to the boys to their delight. But Jojen's had enough of this place. He says they need to get going before other wolves come to feast on the dead. Osha says, sure, but they need to get food first and they also need to check for survivors. Huh, Osha, the humanitarian, who knew? Mira will guard their backs with a frog shield as they pick their way through Winterfell. The party spends the whole morning looking through Winterfell, but they don't find anything but death and destruction. The great hall doors were burned, the glass gardens were broken up, and the stables were all burned down. Bran wants to cry for his horse dancer. They make their way over to the library tower and find the stone cracked, letting out hot water from the castle, and Maester Lewin's turret is gone. They find only fire beneath the great keep. All the while, Osha calls out to see if anyone is alive. They only find a dog eating a corpse with the rest of the hunting hounds killed in the kennels. Lewin's ravens eat the dead and Bran sees that Poxytim is among the slain. Another corpse slays burnt, raising two fists into the air in a final act of defiance. If the gods are good, Osha said in a low angry voice, the others will take them that did this work. It was Theon, Bran said blackly. But Osha points out that it wasn't actually Theon. She points out that Black Lauren is dead and so is Theon's horse. She kicks a corpse over and points out a badge of a little man, all in red. Bran realizes that it's the Bolton sigil, but then Summer howls and runs away. The godswood! Mira Reed ran after the direwolf, her shield and frog spear in hand. 
The rest of them trailed after threading their way through smoke and fallen stones. The air was sweeter under the trees. A few pines along the edge of the wood had been scorched, but deeper in the damp soil and green wood had defeated the but the deep but deeper in the damp soil and green wood had defeated the flames. There is a power in living wood, said Jojen Reed, almost as if he knew what Bran was thinking. A power strong as fire. They make their way over to the black pool and find none other than Maester Lewin on his belly in front of the heart tree with a blood trail behind him. Bran thinks he's dead, but then Mira touches Lewin's neck, and Maester Lewin lives on, at least for the moment. They get Maester Lewin onto his back, and Bran takes note of his gray eyes, gray hair, and his formerly gray robes now darkened by blood. Bran, he said softly when he saw him sitting on tall on Hodor's plaque. And Rickon, too! He smiled. The, the gods are good. I, I knew. Knew? said Bran certainly. The, the, the legs. I, I, I could tell. The clothes fit, but the muscles in his legs. Poor, poor lad. He coughed and blood came out from inside of him. <laughs> you vanished in the woods. How, though? Well, they only went to the edge of the woods, and then they doubled back and sent the wolves on while they hid in Ned Stark's tomb. Lewin chuckles at them hiding in the crypts, but the chuckle causes Lewin an immense amount of pain. Tears filled Bran's eyes. When a, race, when a man was hurt, you took him to the maester. But what, what could you do when your maester was hurt? Osha says they need to make a litter to carry him, but Lewin tells them not to worry themselves. He's dying. You can't, said Rickon angrily. You know you can't. Beside him, Shaggy Dog bared his teeth and growled. The maester smiled. Hush now, child, I, I, I'm much older than you. I, I could die as I please. Bran orders Hodor down so that Bran can talk with Lewin, and Lewin tells Osha to split Bran and Rickon up. They're Rob's heirs. Osha agrees, but she doesn't know where to take them. Maybe to the Kerwins? Maester Lewin shook his head, though it was plain to see that what the effort cost him. Kerwin's boy's dead. Sir Roderick, Leopold Tarhart, Ladies Hornwood, all slain. Deepwood fallen, Moat Caelan, soon Torrin Square, Ironman on the stony shore, and east the Bastard Bolton. Then where? asked Osha. White Harbor, the Umbers, I, I, I do not know. War everywhere. Each man against his neighbor and winter coming. Such folly, such black, mad folly. Maester Lewin reached up and grasped Bran's forearm, his fingers closing with a desperate strength. You must be strong now. Strong. I will be, Bran said, though it was hard. Sir Roderick killed, and Maester Lewin, everyone, everyone. Good, the Maester said. Uh, good boy, your, your father's son, Bran. Now go. Osha gazed up at the werewoods at the red face carved in the pale trunk. And leave you for the gods? I beg, the maester swallowed. Uh, a drink of water and another boon, if you would. I, she turned to Mira, take the boys. Whew, oh, my heart is kind of breaking here. I'm sure that's going for everyone else. I don't care how many times I've read these freaking books and this chapter, but yeah. <clears throat> Joja and Mira take charge of Rickon as Hodor carries Bran along. Osha returns a minute later, saying nothing of Lewin. She says that Hodor has to stay with Bran to be his legs. She'll take Rickon. We'll go with Bran, said Jojen Reed. Aye, I thought you might, said Osha. Believe I'll try the east gate and follow the king's road a ways. We'll take the hunter's gate, said Mira. Hodor, said Hodor. They stopped by the kitchens first to grab some food for the road. Outside, they made their farewells. Rickon sobbed and clung to Hodor's leg until Osha gave him a smack with the butt, of, with the butt end of her spear. Then he followed her quick enough. Shaggy dogs stalked after them. 
The last Brand saw of them was the direwolf's tail as it vanished behind this broken tower. All right, try not to cry. Bran and Hodor, Mira and Jojen get to the hunter's gate and squeeze through the bars one by one. When they cross, Bran asks the reeds whether they'll go to Greywater Watch. Mira looked to her brother for an answer. Our road is north, Jojen announced. At the edge of the wolf's wood, Bran turned in his basket for one last glimpse of the castle that had been his life. Wisps of smoke still rose into the gray sky, but no more than might have risen from Winterfell's chimneys on a cold autumn afternoon. Suit stains marked some of the arrow loops, and here and there a crack or a missing merlon could be seen in the curtain wall, but it seemed little enough from this distance. Beyond, the tops of the keeps and the towers still stood as they had for hundreds of years, and it was hard to tell that the castle had been sacked and burned at all. The stone is strong, Bran told himself. The roots of the trees go deep, and under the ground the kings of winter sit their thrones. So long as those remained, Winterfell remained. It was not dead, just broken. Like me, Bran thought. I'm not dead either. <sighs> and that is the synopsis for A Clash of Kings, Bran 7, and the end of our synopses for A Clash of Kings proper. Let me just say it's been an honor to do this synopsis and finish my final synopsis for a clash of kings with you all i am feeling that deep bittersweet feeling that george wanted me to feel at the end of this book but i'm strangely content what a ride it's been and what a chapter this one is what did you guys think about it a game of thrones the first book in the series ended with death paying for life a transformation of dead wood dead stone and dead meat into live dragons. A Clash of Kings ends on a similar note of transcendence. In place of Drogo's funeral pyre, we have the burning ruins of Winterfell. In place of Danny's few remaining followers, we have Bran's pack of outsiders and true believers, Jojen, Mira, Osha, and Hodor. In place of dragons, we have direwolves. But the core concept stays the same, rebirth. Bran was supposedly dead, yet in this chapter he literally emerges from the grave. Going through A Clash of Kings, we have been praising this brand storyline. Everything that came before just feeds into this perfect ending. It's my favorite brand chapter in A Clash of Kings and one of the best chapters in the book. It's it's the culmination of everything. What do you think, Manu? Going to outdo you right out of the gate and just say <laughs> this is my favorite ass-wolf chapter outright mm -hmm. and basically why I was probably asked to join you fine gentlemen today. Absolutely. <laughs> Brand Bran 7 is just a powerhouse of emotion, a thorough accounting of all we've lost, but also a reaffirmation of what we still have and the future that comes with it. It's been 23 chapters since we've last seen Bran. It's my obligation here to point out that Brand 7 is chapter 69 of ACOC. <laughs> but, but that first time through, man, did it feel much longer to me than just a third of the book. I can't say I was the most astute reader my f first time with Clash, so I happily bought Theon's narrative about the dead Stark boys, missing, missing out on the hints that it was all a feint. What I didn't miss, however, was the Lannister shock at the news in Tyrion 12, and most obviously Catelyn's grief in her final Clash chapter, which you two wallowed in and exquisitely in that episode. So I was carrying the death of Bran Stark on my soul that first time through, and what a release it was to see my boy alive. And not just alive, but Bran has seemingly taken his next steps, metaphysically speaking, with his newly opened third eye. That release didn't come without cost, though. 
the ruins of Winterfell and the scores of dead bodies are the backdrop for all this, and the tear-jerking goodbye to Master Lewin is a punctuation on that melancholy. What about you, Jeff? That was beautifully said. I just have a question before we get into the into my thoughts proper. Did you watch season two, episode 10 before you read this chapter in Clash of Kings, or did you read the books first? Um, I had read the books prior to uh, watching the first season of A Game of Thrones, so um, I did not know, and uh, we'll talk about it later, but I think the show kind of messed up leading up to this moment, which is why it maybe lacked some of the impact that the mm. text had for me, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Powerful stuff that first time through. I absolutely agree. And one of the reasons why I agree is that George has famously said that he plans to end his Song of Ice and Fire on a bittersweet note. What he hopes to do is capture the same spirit that Tolkien ended The Lord of the Rings on. I believe that A Clash of Kings Brand 7 is George giving us a taste of that ultimate bittersweet conclusion to A Song of Ice and Fire. And I love how it closes this book on that note. As far as book conclusions in A Song of Ice and Fire go, I love the music of dragons ending a Game of Thrones. I can still feel the thrill of the Stoneheart reveal at the end of A Storm of Swords. In their hands, the dagger still sends shivers down my spine at the end of A Dance with Dragons. And I'm Pate the Pig Boy ending to A Feast for Crows. Yeah, we're just going to fucking skip that because the less said about that one, the better. But A Clash of Kings Brand 7 is my favorite ending to any book in A Song of Ice and Fire. It evokes a deep well of sadness and hope in me as a reader. George's art allows me to experience emotions, and I, like you, Manu, I cherish the memory of experiencing these emotions on my first read, and love that George can make me still feel them here on my umpteenth read. Brand the Broken is leaving a broken Winterfell behind, but it's not dead. Winter is coming indeed, but we can dream of spring and summer. And fittingly, Brand starts this chapter dreaming, or working through summer, seeing that winter has come for his beloved castle. I think you're right that George is giving us a glimpse of the end of the story here, and you can see that in the imagery of the opening line. The ashes fell like a soft gray snow. That's the song of ice and fire right there. Ashes masquerading as snow, like how Jon's Targaryen blood is hidden beneath his stark identity and snow name. The snow of winter embodies the ruins, the ashes, of spring and summer. The final product is gray, like the ambiguous morality George loves to explore. It's the product of everything coming together as one. Specifically, a grayness in the north and the northern cause, which was nothing but righteous through book one. But with the northern politics in play with Bran and Theon, the actions of Roose Bolton and enlistment of bloody mummers, the moral air of the north has evaporated. The stark color of white has given way to the gray, the other stark color, implying this was always there. Absolutely it was. Now it's not winter yet, of course. Clash of Kings opened with the arrival of autumn, and the overall tone of the book has been autumnal. This is the bittersweet time, in which summer is still visible, but winter is encroaching upon it. If winter is death, autumn is the awareness of death. That fits Bran's story, the young fantasy reader coming of age. It especially fits his story in this book, learning to self-actualize, take control. The wolf named Summer walks on an autumn floor. Dry needles, brown leaves. We're back at the end of Theon 6. Summer is a hunter and the smell of blood draws him on. The smell of the fire, however, holds him back. All Bran can do is watch through his eyes as their home burns. 
I do like that Summer here acknowledges that fire is the most dangerous thing out of all the things in front of him. And it kind of set, sets up that dialectic of ice and fire kind of right here in a writ small, so to speak. That's mm. true. It's an escalation above the normal tensions, the normal threats that Summer is accustomed to dealing with. But he's staying back from this. It's practically apocalyptic. The fires eat up the stars. The earth shakes as buildings collapse. The sounds of killing inside the castle echo outward until they seem to fill up the whole world. Summer sees the buildings of the castle, though, described as stark against the swirling flames. The stones embody House Stark, and this chapter is about what remains, preserved against the fall. Summer and Shaggy Dog prowl through the winter town. Some buildings have burned down, others, like the castle, stay standing. But one thing stays constant. The people are gone. Dead or fled, they have vanished. And maybe not just dead or fled, but also taken in chains to the Dreadford, as we're going to find mm-hmm. out in Theon's first chapter in, in A Dance with Dragons. And another thing I, I get the sense from this chapter is that there's a constant of the false night, one that obscures the light outside. First, there's the smoke from Ramsay burning Winterfell, which makes it hard to tell day from night from Summer's perspective. Then there's the fires that were, quote unquote, eating up the stars as Summer sees and that night before the day when they emerged from the crypts. And then later in this chapter, there's the constant question about what time of day it is when the company is down in the crypts. So in thinking about this, perhaps overanalyzing this, George may be taking a leaf from an event from Return of the King, the third book in Lord of the Rings, known as the Dawnless Day, which is an event which occurs just prior to the Siege of Gondor, where Baragon tells Pippin, this is no weather of the world. This is some device of his malice, some broil of fume from the mountain of fire that he sends to darken hearts and counsel. As we've been talking a lot in our journey so far in A Song of Ice and Fire, the actions of the nobility serve as metaphor for how the others operate. And here I wonder if all of this unnatural darkness is a metaphor for the long night, the apocalyptic and unnatural dying of the light that the others will bring. As Sam will muse about in both his first chapter in A Feast for Crows and John's first chapter in Dance with Dragons, do the others bring the night or do they come with the night? The answer so far as season eight is concerned, and as far as the metaphor is for this chapter is concerned, is that they bring the night with them. But in darkness, there is still light. Summer can still perceive the night and the stars and the rising sun, even amidst all the smoke. And that's a similar dynamic down in the crypts with no one sure what time of day it is. As Stannis will say in the Storm of Swords, the darkness will devour them all. Thank goodness that Bran and Summer are here. And when that darkness passes, nature emerges to bring up the bodies. The feasting crows and wild dogs alike retreat before the direwolves, the princes of the wood. This is still their domain, and everyone knows it. Summer and Shaggy kill a dying horse and then fight over the meat. George wants us to never forget that the wolves are hunters, that predators rule nature. Same goes for the Starks. We first met kindly old dad Ned as an executioner. We might like the Starks more than the Lannisters or Greyjoys, but our heroes are still part of the Pyramid of Death. Bran wants to stay a wolf, because in their natural state, even predators are innocent. They kill only to eat, with no malice. They are free of the awareness of mortality that defines man. We know we're ultimately headed for, quote, the House of Whispers where all men were blind, claimed by the cold fingers of death. As a direwolf, Bran can pretend he'll run forever under the trees and skies. Not so as a man. Not anymore. When last we covered a Bran chapter, he was still Theon's prisoner. 
We only learned about his escape through Theon's eyes, and then it, then it turned out that Theon never found the Stark boys after all. It's become a major mystery. Where has Team Bran actually been this whole time? I love how George slow rolls the reveal in this chapter, allowing him to focus on the imagery and the thematic importance of the clips for Bran, not just the shock of the reveal. <laughs> yeah, I really like how he starts you with that sensory-rich point of view of summer. It creates a, goddammit, stark contrast to the void <laughs> Bran is in. But at the same time, you see the darkness and hear the emptiness and smell the rankness, as if George writing summer tuned up our senses so we can soak in what Bran and co. have been experiencing for however long they've been down in the crypts. Yeah, and I think there's there's a possibility, too, that George slow rolling this reveal leads us to believe as readers that we're in Summer's perspective at the first part of this chapter, that maybe that's all that's left of Bran. Maybe he actually did die somewhere out in the wilderness and in nature, and that's why we're in Summer's point of view, because that's the only vantage point that Bran is surviving from. But as it turns out, that is not the actual only place that Bran is surviving. That is only his third eye opening. I think I love this slow motion reveal, too, because it's a callback to Bran's first chapter in A Clash of Kings, when Bran howls like a wolf despite Lewin telling him to stop howling because he's the Prince of Winterfell and needs to act like a prince. Here, Bran is actually occupying the role of an actual wolf. He is no longer simply pretending to be a wolf. He's actually occupying the role of a wolf being inside the body of Summer. What also reminded me of, too, is how like the darkness is reaching for Summer here in this chapter. It reminds me of almost like death reaching for Bran in that trippy dream chapter that he had back in Bran's third chapter in A Game of Thrones with death reaching for him and then him flying. You can understand why Summer is reluctant to go down to the darkness because there is a almost a metaphorical death associated with the darkness. And that means that we are that, that Summer is reluctant to go down there. One, because it's dark. Two, because he's no longer free and he's trapped in the darkness. And three, he ends up going back to being Bran the Broken. That, that, it's all that, that sensory richness you guys are talking about. Bran 7 is one of the most gorgeously written chapters in the series. With imagery so potent, it's more cinematic than most movies. Every paragraph feels like it's sculpted out of smoke. A contradictory mix of transience and permanence. Bran has opened his third eye. And this is what that looks like, sounds like, smells like. He has escaped the cage of consciousness and accessed the texture of time. He is now part god. Bran is an Arthurian Fisher King figure whose fortunes rise and fall with the land. Like Jesus, he stays away three days before his rebirth surrendered by his acolytes. It's a shamanic awakening that stands in sharp contrast to the grounded realities of his body. Still disabled surrounded by his beloved dead, as well as those still alive. There's one moment in James Cameron's Avatar that still holds up for me, <laughs> when the protagonist has just experienced his Avatar body for the first time, and then has to remember that as a human, he can't run and jump. Both Cameron and George R. R. Martin are drawing on the ancient idea that you can only open your third eye by undergoing some sort of physical trial or even a sacrifice. There is a cost to wielding this immense power. And that's dramatically satisfying. You don't want your characters to suffer no consequences. Danny feels alienated, a lonely god above everyone else. Beric Dondarrion loses the memories of his old life. And Bran? Bran thinks he's forgetting how to speak. He thinks of his mortal eyes as the blind to compared to his third eye. The problem with acquiring a sixth sense 
is that your ordinary five start to seem hateful, a cruel farce that cuts you off from yourself and the world. Once you start climbing the tower, you don't want to stop until you fall or jump like you're on. Bran doesn't understand why Jojen is trying to pull him back. I get why he's frustrated. Jojen was the one trying to open his third eye. It feels to Bran like Jojen just won't ever be satisfied with him. Jojen knows that Bran must inhabit a liminal space to save the world. He must be forever in between, both god and man, not tilting over either side. I think this makes Jojen the wisest of the magical mentor figures in A Clash of Kings. Unlike Melisandre, he does not indulge his protege's ego. Unlike Jock and Hagar or Quaith, he sticks around to make sure his protege stays on the path. Perhaps this is part of why Bran winds up the center of the story. Naturally, this relatively responsible path is unsatisfying, especially for Bran, a little kid who thought he'd never get to feel free and happy in his body again. George has said that Bran is the most difficult POV for him to write because of his age, but I think he does a great job. We get a sense of both Bran's childish frustration and the adult motivations driving his mentors. We see the danger. Bran is starting to forget his human body needs food, that Summer's prey won't nourish him. At the same time, Bran is not motivated by a pure lust for power. He loves being able to spend time with his wolf and to speak to Jon in his dreams. Why wouldn't he want to spend his days in the world of his childhood, instead of coming back to the reality where everyone is dead or otherwise fallen? Traversing the crypts embodies that bittersweetness that George Martin has spoken about and Jeff spoke about just a few minutes ago. They are at once traversing a hall of kings, but also the hall of the dead, of greatness and sadness all at once. It's a walking history legend lesson, and I imagine where most of the Stark lineage gets first mentioned in these books to be expanded on later on and in supplemental materials, very similar to Bran's last chapter in A Game of Thrones in that way. Jojen telling Bran he was gone three days and the wolf eating is not the same as Bran eating. If Bran's story is in part about rebuilding himself, he has to know his name and his own identity to do that. I'm not dead either. It starts with I. If we wish to heal, we have to take fair measure of ourselves, and that's what Jojen is asking of Bran here. It's a cruel irony that his warging allows him to connect to his brothers, be it Ghost or John. Uh, some of his most intimate relationships now are now relegated to the other self, and that's going to be another test of Bran's humanity. Bran's final chapter in A Game of Thrones has him descend to the cribs, and what would ultimately lead to him learning about the death of his father. It's all very sorrowful then. This time round... We see Bran emerging from the crypts, a rebirth of sorts, as previously mentioned. He leaves the darkness and warmth of the womb, a son birthed of Winterfell in Stark history. And the fact that he and his pals found refuge in the tomb meant for Ned Stark, that even in death, Ned is still protecting the children. I mean, I just get misty-eyed thinking about that. And thinking about it, it reminds me a lot of that dead direwolf they found in the snow way back in Bran 1. Uh, the dead parent, but still suckling the children and keeping them safe and warm in that way. Um, and then you have that Bran's last look back at his tomb, uh, thinking he saw sadness in his dad's eyes, which I feel when you define Ned Stark, the thing you define his eyes with is it has sadness in them. So th I found it all very emotional without really highlighting that emotion in the text. But just the simple fact it's in Ned's tomb just says so much about what's happening here emotionally and familially. All of this speaks to the power of history and heritage. 
how it can be simultaneously an enduring strength and a weight on your shoulders. Time only runs one way for us. Every step we take is forward, whether we like it or not. As soon as we experience a moment, it's over. It becomes a statue, a crypt. A king becomes a rock for Osha to piss on. We project our present selves into those past vessels. We can't bring the dead back, yet we can't help ourselves from trying. It's what our brains do. It's why stories work so well on us. They stand fallen time on its feet again. Bran is starting to break the borders, producing what George describes as double vision. Bran can look above ground and below at the same time. He sees the acorn within the tree, the tree within the acorn. Like Danny in the House of the Undying, he sees the structure of his reality, which is the structure of story. While most of us don't open our third eye, we all experience moments in which our lives change. Bran thinks that his father's ghost wants him to stay, but it's time to leave, forge his own future. That is universal. So too is Bran's realization that even as he picks up the sword of manhood, this is only another type of game, another mask to wear. Growing up is not the process of finally becoming who you are. It's the realization that you will never, ever be done becoming who you are. Fantasy, like a ghost, is a mirror we use to make sense of ourselves. Bran looks down the line of dead kings, all the fantasy protagonists that have come before him with their sagas, their myths. They never scared him, he thinks. Death never scared him, because he knew he'd be coming here. The font of legend, like the warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, ready to be reborn in story. There's a, the, my favorite Indiana Jones moment from our Last Crusade when he yells at the villain, it belongs in a museum, and the bad guy yells back, so do you. <laughs> Myth is the only immortality. Only after you are gone do you become a fixed point, frozen in the eye of the beholder. To live, as Bran knows now, is to be uncertain where you will rest. It would be easier to stay down in the darkness with your dreams of the dead. But what did they die for? except that you might one day live. And those moments that you and Manu were referencing and talking about stepping out of the darkness and Bran leaving his dad behind are powerful, and I think they're both connected. To leave the crypts, Bran has to leave the physical visage of his father behind. He has to accept that his dad is truly gone and is never returning. Now, when we talk about Bran's manor figures in A Song of Ice and Fire, that seemingly doesn't feature very prominently in fan discussions with most of that discussion centering around Jojen and Bloodraven being those kind of dual mentors and Lewin and Roderick Cassell also occupying similar places. However, we should always remember that our first chapter after the Game of Thrones prologue, also the first chapter written for A Song of Ice and Fire proper, is from Bran's point of view, where his dad mentors Bran about why he killed the man that deserved from the Night's Watch and that the only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid. Bran is afraid here. He knows what awaits the party when they cross the darkness to light, but he presses on anyways. So as he leaves his dad behind, he keeps his dad with him. Lewin will later tell Bran that he is Ned Stark's son, and that's so fucking true. Bran's bravery in stepping from darkness to light is keeping Ned's flame alight. The only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid. Our heroes emerge into the light to confirm Bran's wolf dreams. Winterfell has been viciously sacked. 
They've gone from one tomb to another. They stood huddled together with ruin and death all around them. Once again, the dominant color in George's palette is gray, and he wreathes every image in smoke. This is the death of childhood innocence. Bran knows what awaits him, but he is still fearful. As we all know, horror can only be the fear of unknowing. (laughs) Sorry, I hate to bring the extreme online discourse to your podcast, but I guess that's what happens when you have me on. But sometimes the greatest fears we have are already realized. They've already happened. It's only our confronting them that awaits, our processing of that, our catharsis with it. Um, and as I mentioned, there's an accounting going on here um, of, live, of lives lost, of horses, of supplies, of structures not made of stone, um, but also an emotional accounting of you know our traumas and the scars that we bear at this point. Um, but as Brand so astutely will notice eventually that the, the walls... The walls seem unharmed. Everywhere they wander, they see the people and places of Bran's youth destroyed. Even the gargoyles have fallen in the same place Bran did. It's as if he's looking back on that traumatic moment and fully fully processing it, as you were saying, by watching it happen to something else, to the castle itself. The gargoyles have shattered into so many pieces that Bran thinks it's a miracle he's alive at all. That's the silver lining in this cloud. A body lies nearby. Bran can't tell who he is. The body may as well be Bran's. That's the man he could have been, the life he could have lived. The floors, the walls, the beams of the first keep have burned away. The tower itself remains, but hollowed out of all that gave it life. The same dynamic applies to the castle as a whole. The great granite walls are untouched. Everything within has burned. It's so devastating to imagine the greenhouse smashed and the plants within torn up, the spring-fed hot water gushing out onto the ground. The loss here extends beyond the Stark family, even beyond the permanent year-round residence of the castle. Winterfell's life-giving properties help nurture the whole north through winter. It's why the Wintertown exists at all. But now, the crops have been exposed, the hot water wasted. Ramsay, the bastard of Bolton, the devil on Theon's shoulder, has defiled the Garden of Paradise. Yeah, there's a real nihilism in all of this destruction. The sense that Ramsay and his boys didn't give a flying fuck about how Winterfell served as the last resort when the cold winds rise. And we should remember, this is not done by the Iron Men. This was done by Northmen, people who have lived in the North and knew the deprivations of winter itself. The glass gardens, the hot springs, these were the means of keeping the people alive when a potential years-long winter arises, and that long winter is coming rather soon in this story. In a geopolitical context, yeah, an utterly ruined Winterfell does not serve long-term Bolton interests as much as it might have felt good to them. As we talked about in Theon 6, this destruction was likely ordered by Roose Bolton, and you can read this nihilistic violence in the context of the bloody history of the Stark-Bolton conflict, captured really well in A Dance with Dragons, as well as The World of Ice and Fire. I'm sure it felt good to Bruce Bolton that his son smashed up the castle of Winterfell that his forefathers failed to capture and to smash up themselves. But it's utterly fucking stupid from a geopolitical and tactical standpoint to do that. For one, the castle is the most impregnable castle in the North, and it serves as a visible symbol of legitimacy in the North. When we get back to the North and a dance with dragons, Roos will decide in Barrowton to host the marriage of Ramsay and Faria, that is Jane Poole, at Winterfell because, even ruined and broken, Winterfell remains Lady Arya's home. What better place to wed her, bed her, and stake your claim? 
Hey, Roos, maybe don't ruin and break Winterfell? Guys, maybe occupy the castle instead, claim you liberated the castle from the Greyjoys and keep it intact? Might do you all some good in the long term. Nope, burn the castle down because it feels good to psychopaths to destroy shit and they can say they were avenging their history. From, ano from another standpoint, all of this destruction wrought by the Boltons means that they just burned up all of the food that would keep them alive during the winter. More than keep them alive, even if everyone is righteously aghast at what Ramsay did, the people have to eat. And though they might not like the idea of bringing a, a please sir, I want some more bowls for the Boltons, the alternative for the small folk is starvation. Nuking Winterfell is utterly bananas, man. Ramsay has denied the Boltons the ability to potentially rule on in perpetuity in the North. But what does it matter to someone like Ramsay Snow, Ramsay Snow and Roose Bolton? Ramsay especially embodies just, just chaos and, and no forethought, no consideration for the future. I think it's no accident that the library tower is the one losing all its hot water. For George, story is lifeblood. What more potent, what more potent symbol of destruction could there be? Than a, than a library bleeding out onto the ground. One heartbroken mom moment sums it all up. Rickon shouts that he wants to go home. But he is home. Or is he? He doesn't recognize it. Home was horses and apple cakes, as he says. Home was his parents. Maybe home is a time, not a place. And now their time in Winterfell, as children, is over. As often is the case, this much violence is hard to wrap your head around and understand. Perhaps that's what obscures home from Rickon and recognition. Bran's instinct is to blame Theon, but Osha looks deeper. The ironborn number the dead along with Stark loyalists, and the sigil of the flayed man is found nearby. The flayed man of the Dreadfort, but before Bran can even finish that sentence, Summer beckons them to the godswoods. Returning back to this chapter after, you know, f after my first time reading, or my first time reading, I had some trouble parsing exactly all what went down in the last Theon chapter, because as you guys described, it's just a clusterfuck of chaos, for <laughs> lack of a better word. Uh, so I was right there with Bran and Osha trying to put together the pieces, and I swear I'm not like illiterate like Jeff, and I usually read very <laughs> critically. But, you know, I'll admit the first time through A Clash of Kings, I could say maybe my interest in the Theon Davos chapters were just a little less than Arya and Jon and Tyrion. So um, I missed out on some of that. So I was trying to pick up the pieces just like Bran and Osha were here. But I do like the fact that the Godswood, the heart of Winterfell, is also untouched by all this. And Bran, metaphorically, as the heart of Winterfell, he too, not untouched, but he survived this wave of violence. Um, the heart beats on, the heart goes on. The heart of Winter may not be that far north of the wall. It might be in Bran Stark and uh, the Godswoods of Winterfell. Uh, there's a power in a living wood, which is an affirmation from Jojen, but also... Bran's going to be a fucking tree wizard here, so I just <laughs> yeah. like that uh, play of language. Oh, yeah, that's mm -hmm. ultimately his own power that he's going to realize he's accessing at the end of the day. And yeah, the one part of the castle that defeated the flames is, of course, the god's wood. Jojen seems to read Bran's thoughts. The wood is alive, more alive than the rest of the castle, with ancient magic all to itself. Like the crypt, this is where a shard of stark energy is preserved through time. Ironically, the god's wood is an oasis in this chapter... For the most secular man in the castle, the man who said even gods die, Maester Lewin. Yet again, George emphasizes the gray colors, the gray eyes, Bran notes, the gray hair, the gray robes, the gray castle, now all stained blood red. 
It's just the purest, simplest form of emotion here. How do you heal the healer, Brand thinks. An innocent but altogether breathtaking sentiment from the child. And on the opposite end of the age spectrum, Lewin, just palpable relief and joy, knowing that Brand and Rickon are alive and the fact that he got to see them one last time. It's so sad for the Starklings to lose someone else they love. Again, they are forced to grow up, to accept that adults don't always know what to do. As you say, you're relying on the healer, and once you get past them, turns out there's just nothing. But this is overall a happy, redemptive moment for Lewin himself. He dies by his own choice, knowing that he kept his word to keep the Stark boys safe. It makes for an interesting contrast with Maester Crescent on Dragonstone. A Clash of Kings opens and closes with the death of Maesters. The rational, written world falling to its knees before emblems of the irrational sublime. Melisandre at the beginning of the book, and the heart tree here. But Crescent's story was a tragedy in miniature. He saw Stannis, his unloved surrogate son, sell his soul. And Crescent himself betrayed his values by trying to poison Melisandre. He loses and dies for it. Lewin, by contrast, gives way with grace to a world he doesn't understand. The power of the godswood allowed him to live long enough to see his surrogate sons one last time. The secular mentor says, the gods are good. That perfectly sets up Bran to unite the political and magical worlds of A Clash of Kings. And while this chapter opens with the metaphysical and ends with the personal, we get touches of the political right here, with Lewin catching Bran and Osha up on what has transpired in the North. Nowhere safe? And Bran also gets a moment to mourn Sir Roderick, another caretaker and father figure gone. Everyone. Everyone. Exactly. I love that thought from Bran. Everyone. Everyone. Bran has to step up and be strong, as Lewin says. And he will, because he's Ned's son. He was introduced in the story learning this model. That's all the harder, as you say, because the Starks are heading out into a politically fragmented north, with fewer allies than ever before. On reread, it's clear that the internal northern strife in A Clash of Kings, the Hornwood inheritance crisis and all that, exists in large part so that Bran doesn't have a clear refuge to run to at this point of the story. That basically forces him to trust his magical side instead, heading north beyond the wall with the reeds. Besides his encounter with the Little in A Storm of Swords, who kind of lets him know what the state of play is, Bran's journey north is focused on sorcerous and environmental matters, rather than political. His farewell to Maester Lewin puts his political side on ice, but Lewin is concerned above all with Bran and Rickon's safety, knowing their future importance for the politics. Oh, is it time for me to talk about HBO's Game of Thrones, bitches? (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) Yes. Uh, you may remember me from my old post- podcast, A Scene of Ice and Fire. We never quite got to this scene, but one of my issues with season two is the general brand death handling. Not playing the recard and then hiding Theon's murder so that, or Theon's murder not becoming public knowledge so that Cat and Rob did not have Bran's death weighing on them kind of defangs a lot of that sorrow that I think I was talking about earlier in this episode. Um, all that aside... This final scene with Donald Sumter is just masterful acting, tugging at your heartstrings with every word, reaching out for Bran when he sees him. You can just feel feel that yearning in uh, Maester Lewin's heart. 
Um, and they did, you know, a very classic adaptation thing here. They beefed up Lewin's dialogue. Um, they gave him more to say to Bran in a heartfelt way. Like, I brought you into this world and I got to live with you every day since then. It's just very touching, fatherly type words. And my favorite piece of dialogue adapted here was they um, took that last line from Bran's chapter, um, I'm not dead either. And they kind of externalized it in a form of dialogue where Bran says, they burned everything. And then Master L- Maester Lewin just looks at him and is like, not everything, not you. <laughs> and that part just always gets me because it's just a re- reaffirmation when you you know, kind of strip away some of the game, game of Thrones and the castles and the, you know, pageantry. It's the people that really matter. Um, and I like that centering of humanity here in this moment. And then, of course, Sumter nodding at Natalie Tina's knife, asking for another boon with his eyes. Uh, and then Natalie Tina having these deathly sad eyes in response. Um, and the stark Winterfell light motif swelling as she unsheaths the dagger. And then you cut away to the long shot of the group walking away from a burning Winterfell. Um, I think as a singular scene, it's one of the best that Game of Thrones did. And I think it's maybe the most touching death scene to me of the ones that I knew was coming at least. Um, Just because I think it elevated, or at least it deepened my love for it in a way that maybe some of the other ones didn't. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. No, I love that because, you know, me, I give the throne show as much shit as anyone, as everyone. But yeah, they nailed this scene masterfully. Uh, Because you had inspired me, I actually gave this scene a a rewatch yesterday. And wow, Lewin talking about how he's known Brandon Brickon's faces since the day they were born and how he considers himself very, very lucky. Just ugh, outstanding writing by, uh, oh shit, D&D wrote this episode? Hmm. Hmm. Give those men some <laughs> Emmys. The show did, a, I think, a really good job of econo- economically adapting Brand 7 to a three-minute, 58-second scene from season two's Valor Morgulis, and it's just wonderfully written and just condenses the material really well. One thing I love from the books that didn't make it onto the screen is this line as Bran is carried away from Lewin. Low branches whipped at Bran's face as they pushed between the trees, and the leaves brushed away his tears. On a literary level, I think George might be borrowing from the Bible yet again. He borrows from the Bible quite a lot, and specifically the book of Revelations, chapter 22, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The old order is truly passing for Bran. His father is dead. His manners of Roger Cassell and Maester Lewin are gone now as well. The politics I love so dearly when we cover Bran too have been not necessarily replaced, but they've been added onto by the ethereal world. Jojen, who has been occupying a larger mentor role in training Bran's magical side, is coming onto center stage, and Blood Raven will follow in A Dance with Dragons and The Winds of Winter. Still, there's something beautiful about the scene beyond the passing of a phase of life. It reminds me of the heavy rains that fall over Rob and Catelyn and the rest of the Northmen as they journey to the twins. There, the author, as Stephen Atwell has talked about, is like the narrative and the author are weeping for the coming deaths, knowing that death was coming for those characters that were beloved by us. Here, this scene feels like nature taking pity on Bran, comforting him at his loss. But if you read it in another way, the leaves of the gods would brushing Bran's tears away, reads like the magical part of the world comforting Bran as at his loss. Or, read another way, it may be the answer to Bran, to the question Bran posed to Lewin back in his first chapter in A Clash of Kings. Do dead men dream, Bran asked. Some say yes, some no, Maester Lewin answered. The dead themselves are silent on the matter. Call me 
horrifically idealistic and romantic here, but I wonder whether this is the dead Lewin now dreaming, living on in the godswood itself, comforting Bram at his deep, deep loss. Oh, I love that. I've always thought mm-hmm. about, you know, the the wind in the trees after someone has passed might be their their last presence trying to give you comfort. And, you know, that can be a very a very glib or shallow idea if presented thoughtlessly. But here I think there is a real sense that Lewin is, is still present at some level. Brand 7 is a beautifully written chapter all the way through, but what makes it one of the best chapters in A Clash of Kings is how it ends. Jeff spoke so well earlier about what an effective ending this passage is for A Clash of Kings, and I agree, it's the best ending of any book in the series. Yeah, I'm just here to be extremely in my feelings about this <laughs> ending. Uh, we, we remember how that last paragraph ends, but it opens with the wall of two, one last glimpse of the castle that had been his life. Bran's the last Stark to have his physical call to adventure, but he too, like his brothers and sisters, must leave home. And Bran noting that in spite of the smoke, the castle from afar looks mostly unharmed. He's taking that analytical 3,000 foot view of the situation, something he very metaphysically does whenever he dreams of flying and, you know, all that. So, and I love the phrase, the stone is strong, because it just invokes the seed is strong. Rock and stone, tree and seed, imagery of the children of the forest. It's something more eternal than, you know, this human flesh, so to speak. And just like the, lad- the latter line, the seed is strong, refers to the vitality of the Baratheon line, the former, the stone is strong, represents the same for the Starks, but perhaps, again, in a grander, more ethereal sense, not just, you know, limited to the realms of men. And that, that reaching for something grander, that, that kind of swelling upwards feeling, I think, is so key to how this chapter ends. We talk a lot in life about achieving perspective or putting things into context. These can often feel like abstract and unhelpful terms. It is difficult to concretely capture these concepts because the whole idea of context and perspective is that there is more to life than the concrete. This last paragraph in the chapter expands Brand's consciousness, and with it, the readers. It embeds the POV, the eye of the beholder, into the fabric of reality, collapsing the spaces between us all. The thing I am looking at Bran thinks, that lifeless structure of stone is like me. It is a metaphor for me, and I am a metaphor for it. We explain each other, incomplete without each other, like a story and its audience. Granite does not burn easily, as Stannis says. The castle can be rebuilt in time. It's not the walls that make a lord, it's the man. I don't think George has ever done a better job distilling the essence of myth and how it resonates in the confusing mess of an individual life. Bran is Orpheus looking back at Eurydice. He is Christ saying that his apostles are his family now. He is David Bowman at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey, gazing into his own perpetually aging self. And you know I was going to monologue about movies for one of the most cinematic (laughs) chapters in the story. The spiritual power of Bran 7 reminds me of three movies in particular. Kubrick's 2001... Andrei Tarkovsky's Mirror, and sorry to bring up the Soviets, Jeff, please forgive me for that unconscionable (laughs) sin, and Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. All three of these great works encapsulate the human condition through poetic means, and what I mean by that is they are built around gaps in between images. The images are dazzling, standing in for life itself. The gaps are provocative, standing in for unknown, mysterious elements outside life, death, 
rebirth, and divinity. 2001 A Space Odyssey is about evolution. Not physical evolution so much as the evolution of consciousness and thought, the knights of the mind, to put it in Maester Lewin's terms. The dawn of man, as the movie declares it at the beginning, is the food chain, basically. Eating and being eaten, like Bran's life inside summer. Then the famous monolith descends, the hand of God from above, like the three-eyed crow expanding Bran's vision. Man looks up the monolith into the sky and sees the moon calling to him. It's the birth of imagination, the inner life of metaphor and dreams. The image awakens in man not only the ability to fashion a club from a bone, but to envision killing an animal of that same species with it. Like Bran, early man sees death within life, and vice versa. It's the double vision, as George called it, a poetic leap that allows man to conquer his environment. The thrill of expanding consciousness is checked by the violent selfish ends to which man puts his intelligence. Like Bran in Bloodraven's Cave, modern man in 2001 is forced through another transformation. Dave Bowman journeys beyond the infinite. There, he watches himself die and is reborn as the messianic star child, ready to go home. It's the Odyssey, after all, and Bran is going through the same arc. Tarkovsky's mirror, by contrast, is about one guy, the disembodied mind of the director, expressed through the POV of the camera and voiceover narration. The opening shot is a little boy turning on a TV and seeing nothing but static. The second shot is a young man struggling past his stutter to state his name for the camera. The third is the narrator's mother sitting on a fence staring out at a field, as the voiceover tells us they're watching for his father, who will never return. Taken together, these images imply a story. The director is searching for his origins. He cannot find them by conventional means. He must remake himself in storytelling. He must assert himself in the mirror of movie making. You have to infer a lot like that to make sense of Mirror, which winds up being the whole point of Mirror. The director's search is doomed by his limited perspective. He casts the same woman as his mother and his wife, the same boy as himself and his son, representing his memories and present life blurring together. The story of Mirror is the director's desperate desire to put these pieces together. At the end, he gives way in grace, releasing a symbolic bird from his hand allowing it to fly through his past, present, and future, united. Bran, too, saw a bird flying through his dreams, and he, too, is trying to make sense of the foggy fragments of his life. The main recurring iconic image of Mirror is a childhood home on fire, and the same applies here. Bran is searching through the charred ruins of his childhood. As with the protagonist of Mirror, his ghosts seem to come to life in the crypt. Terence Malick's The Tree of Life is basically 2001 crossed with Mirror, it's the story of the evolution of man and also the story of one random guy. The influence of both older movies is obvious. The cosmic sequences of Tree of Life echo those of 2001, and Jessica Chastain in Tree of Life is frequently shot in the, in the exact same angles and poses of the mother figure in Mirror. The Tree of Life argues all of existence is captured in the individual soul and vice versa. Every death is the heat death of the universe. Every act of love mirrors the creation. The mother figure becomes Job, demanding that God answer for her suffering. God's response is context, perspective. Oh, your son died? Well, so did every single dinosaur. What, are you special or something? The entire movie takes place in a fraction of a second, on the anniversary of the dead man's death, mourned by his brother, the protagonist. 
Literally all of space-time is compressed into that heartbeat in which he mourns. At the climax, all the walls fall. A mask drifts into the ocean. The protagonist meets his past self, his young mother, his brother reborn. Then they can all move on to wherever they're going next. The final shot in the movie is a bridge reaching out from an island towards the screen, towards you. The immortal link of myth has been forged, not only between the characters, but between the movie and you and the audience. This was your story all along. A bastard boy is worth everything against a kingdom. Every mirror is a space odyssey. Brand 7 shows us his place and ours in the Tree of Life. Is that a line from a Tree of Life I love that applies to, I think, what Brand takes away here? The only way to be happy is to love. Unless you love, your life will flash by. God, I love your cinematic analysis, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Thank so you, good. Yeah, Thank you for listening to all of it. Like, I appreciate if it. <laughs> I was to try to do that, it's like 2001, well... Theon's like the guy in the monkey suit who gets mauled by the tiger that's played by <laughs> Ramsey. Oh, and, he sure is. <sighs> it was not dead, just broken. Like me, I'm not dead either. After a chapter of walking around Winterfell to see what's gone and what remains, Bran finally turns that lens inward. It's an honest assessment. While Bran has called himself broken several times before, this is seemingly the first time that sentiment isn't centered and a source of sadness. I really, really like that he follows up, like me, I'm not dead either, instead of saying, I'm just broken. Feels like he's begun to start looking past his fall to the next step as he journeys beyond Winterfell. This chapter is powerful and cathartic in its own right, with a focus on personal healing and rebuilding. But right now, at the tail end of COVID, we're all emerging from our holes after a long time in the dark, trying to pick up the pieces of broken lives and broken societies. We've lost too many loved ones to count, and everything around us feels like it's burning and broken. But sobbing, we all take another step. We're not dead either. And I've been going through some stuff of late, and revisiting this chapter at this time couldn't be more welcome. It gives us time and space for our misery and our sadness, while also ending on a hopeful note that reinvigorates the reader. It's been very therapeutic to dive into this, so thank you guys again for having me. Yeah, man, it's our absolute pleasure, and we're we're so pleased to to do this chapter with you. And um, you know, we 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 I, I love analyzing a song of ice and fire. I know you do too, and theorizing about it. And it's it's the emotions that that really bring us together all of us from our disparate backgrounds and it's it's a pleasure having you to to join us for our, our final chapter in a clash of kings and this sorrowful yet hopeful chapter too it's it's beautiful and it speaks to me personally as well as it spe- as it spoke to you and right before the powerful ending of a clash of kings i love the way that brand's final statement is framed within the walls of winterfell death and destruction abound and horrors await them as they emerge from the crypts And yet the farther they move from Winterfell, the less it looks like devastation. Wisps of smoke still rose into the gray sky, but no more than might have risen from Winterfell's chimneys on a cold autumn afternoon. Suit stains mark some of the the arrow loops, and here and there a crack or a missing merlon could be seen in the curtain wall. But it seemed little enough from this distance. Beyond the tops of the keeps and the tower still stood as they had for hundreds of years, and it was hard to tell that the castle had been sacked and burned at all. 
Like I was saying, we've all felt this chapter deeply. We feel the brokenness and the agony of seeing a place we fell in love with go down hard. We're offended by the defilement of a sacred place because this was our first castle we really got to know in A Game of Thrones. It was sacred ground for us as readers, and George has made us feel like this place, much as he does with the ship Fever Dream in his book, Fever Dream, is a living character in the story of A Song of Ice and Fire. Coming back to this chapter now, this chapter would almost feel like the death of a character. It's Ned dying, or Catelyn, or Rob, or Quentin, all those characters that we care about dying. But George only wants us to take us to the brink here. He doesn't want to push us over into utter pessimism, because the stone is strong. The roots are sunk deep. Ramsay Snow, Roose Bolton, Waterfrey, Tywin Lannister, they'll all be dead long before this castle was actually dead. It ain't dead because Winterfell still stands and one boy will live on, perhaps even longer than Winterfell itself. Bran may be the future god king around which everything orbits, but he is also a lonely little boy who has lost the only home he has ever known. It's still strong from a distance. And now that distance is going to grow. As his context and perspective changes, Bran must rely on himself. He is setting out on the road. The road. Tolkien's road. The eternal road at the heart of high fantasy. Bringing the past into the present. On and on. In order to learn how to live, we fall back on story and myth. Candle flames flickering on the stone faces behind us. And they did the same thing. I brought up Stanley Kubrick in 2001 earlier. He was interviewed by Playboy around the time of its release. And they asked him near the end of the interview basically how he kept going if he sincerely believed, as the movie expresses, that there is no inherent meaning to life. His response is probably my favorite short statement by any artist. And it gets at the same existentialist spirit of this chapter. The same stubborn will to live. He said... The most terrifying fact about the universe is not that it is hostile, but that it is indifferent. But if we can come to terms with this indifference, then our existence as a species can have genuine meaning. However vast the darkness, we must supply our own light. Hmm, That's well said, and I think for Bran, he's infusing the meaning of his own life by his last looks at Winterfell. He knows it's just a castle, it's just stones and walls and places, but it's also a home, and he sees himself in those old stones. Part of what makes this such a powerfully emotive statement at the end of Bran's story is how the thoughts about Winterfell are coming from Bran himself, a kid who has every right to give in to despair given everything he's been through in his narrative arc. But he doesn't give in to despair. Bran is going to live on much as Winterfell will, and even if the stones topple The roots of the place are deep. The history and memory of Winterfell will live long in the memory of the godswood. The memory of the singers are interwoven within the heart tree itself. The Stark kings and lords have their crypt statues deep underground, and the fires of of the Ramses of this world cannot touch them and memory. Winterfell and Bran are strong. The castle can be rebuilt, and Bran will never walk again, but he will fly. So well said, sir. Perfect, perfect way to, to wrap it up. Moving on to a, a foreshadowing and groundwork. So there's the great winged snake that Summer sees above Winterfell that has, has caused much discussion, as such things tend to, on the internet. And that could be foreshadowing for R plus L equals J, or uh, possibly an allusion to dragon eggs hidden underneath the castle. But I, don't, I don't know how much farther I want to take that one. I think probably R plus L equals J is, is the, the most solid way to think about it. 
I got nothing to add to that. <laughs> that sounds about <laughs> as much as I could extract from it. But Jeff, what do you think? I mean, there's been like a lot of theories that that brand that Summer saw an actual dragon flying over Winterfell, but I think like the context of it makes it clear that it's not an actual dragon because Summer gets smoke in his eyes and he blinks for a second. He sees what he sees the smoke forming into a dragon. It, it kind of reminds me of. I'm sure you guys have done this when you're kids looking up into the sky and seeing clouds up there and being like, oh, there's a spaceship. That one up there, that one looks like a submarine. And that one looks like a blimp flying over over the over the air. So I, I don't think it's an actual dragon, but I do think it symbolizes R plus L equals J. I think it could also be an allusion to the fact that dragons will come to Winterfell at the end of the story in the form of Danny's three dragons coming up to save the day and fight the others at the end of the story. Yeah, I totally agree. I think... I understand the temptation to make a lot of this and say, oh, it's a literal dragon, but it's like then, you know, we get to a storm of swords and it's like no reports of dragons rampaging around the countryside or anything. Right. So if this was going to be literal, it would have been a thing by now. So I, yeah, I, I, so much of this chapter fe- is, feels literally and metaphorically like a dream in the same way that, you know, Tyrion didn't literally lose his mouth in his last chapter. That was just part mm-hmm. of his part of his guilt and part of his dreamscape. And yeah, I think same thing here. So, second bit of foreshadowing is that Hodor opens the door here, and as his name hints, he will hold the door later on here. It's kind of funny, coming back, that we, we talked about this at significant length, and that we didn't know that Hodor was an actual mystery that was was something we had to unlock about Hodor's name until it was revealed in season six of the show. But when you go back and you read these brand chapters, you start to see a lot of the foreshadowing that George is integrating into Hodor's name, meaning hold the door. Yeah, and I think... I think of it as like the inversion thing or where uh, George R.R. Martin likes to take the same thing and then kind of change like one variable in it. Um, And, you know, kind of like how Bran descended into the crypts to end a Game of Thrones and then comes out of it to end a Clash of Kings. Here we have Hodor opening a door. I honestly have no idea if he's going to be holding a door shut, uh, lifting a door, walking through a door. I mean, it's hold the door, I guess, but what that actually means in a specific sense, you can hold a door open, you can hold a door shut. Um, but I do like the fact that it might be an inverse of it. But what I really like is just Hodor chanting Hodor as like a <laughs> war cry or as, yes. you know, just kind of just like work himself up and psych himself up as he's doing it. And just like Hodor, 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 and just him going through it. I can really feel that, you know, you're rooting for the big guy uh, in that situation. So that's what I really like about it. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I agree. It's it's, you know, this. You were saying earlier, uh, Manu, about how this connects to the his last chapter in book one. It seems like with Bran, like with a, a lot of, you know, kind of fabled and mythological characters, they were kind of always going through the same kind of process, the same kind of trial, just just uh, with the the surface appearance uh, changed around a bit and kind of progressing forward in time. And Hodor was always present and kind of always in the background. And, you know, he'll be brought to a, a more crucial uh, importance later on. But, yeah, I agree. You definitely... You know, you, you feel for his part in the task here because without him, they are all dead. Like they would all, you know, the, the story ends right here. They all starve to death in the crypt and no one ever finds out what happens to them. So really, really, Hodor saves all their lives. Mm-hmm. So Bran thinks that his visions will eventually rob him of his ability to speak. But yet yeah, it is Hodor who loses almost all of his language as a consequence of Bran's power. So again, I think George is setting that up, that question of who's going to bear the sacrifice, who's going to bear the cost for Bran. Bran, you think you're losing your language, but Hodor is going to lose all words but one, thanks to you. And I just think of that that wonderfully spooky line from Jojen in Dance, when Bran is kind of getting afraid of what the, the children of the forest are doing with him. And Jojen says, he is not the one who needs to be afraid. 
It's just like, yes, it's brand. It's everyone around you who who needs to be terrified right right now. Yeah. And I, and I love that because I've always thought that meant that that Jojen was about to be turned to pace, but I think it's very clear that it's also representing the danger that is posed to not just Jojen, but to Mira and to Summer and of course to Hodor too, because that is something I think that George is going to explore in the Winds of Winter is how Hodor became uh, Hodor, how Walter rather is his actual true name became, became Hodor. I think it's going to be pretty, pretty fraught, pretty fraught experience in the Winds of Winter. One final bit of foreshadowing and groundwork here is um, the the missing swords that they take with them from the crypts that will prop up, crop up again, crop up again in a dance with dragons when Theon and Barbary go down and take note of the missing swords. And Theon wonders, oh, could that be the source of the killings in the castle? Are there ghosts about? And I don't think there were are literal ghosts of the Winter Kings about in Winterfell, but it does speak to that same sense of Winterfell is unquiet now. Things are things are awry. The castle will need to be fixed and set back to its rightful owners. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, it's one of those things you read in the moment and you think, okay, they're getting ready to go out into an uncertain situation in the wreckage of Winterfell and then possibly out into the wild, taking the readily available swords, which probably wouldn't be in the armory at this point. I assume it was ransacked. Um, So it just seems like a very practical move here. But then circling it back around in the winds of winter to have it be a, a piece of forensic evidence and Barbary Dustin on her own little noir story trying to figure out what exactly happened at Winterfell so she can better play her cards right, whatever they may be. And, you know, of course, there's the fact that some people think those swords have some kind of metaphysical property or magical property, keeping some sort of souls or keeping the dead in their place. Um, You know, iron is supposed to have some sort of mythic quality, so to speak. But um, I don't know if that part will actually come through. I know season eight of Game of Thrones had the dead literally rising in those crypts. And (laughs) there is a line earlier in this brand chapter where he notes that when the shadows moved, it looked like the dead rising when they were in the middle of the crypt. So Hmm. that could be more foreshadowing for something like that. Uh, but I think the key part of this is definitely the forensic evidence and the great northern conspiracy and where Barbary Dustin's going to fit into all this. She needed this piece to do whatever the next part of her plan is, I think. And, and, I, and I think, you know, there's there's a part of the, the GNC, which I think is actually true, is that Barbary Dustin goes down to investigate the crypt simply because she's trying to confirm what Wyman Manderley has told her about the Stark boys being alive because the idea being that Wyman Manderley is consulting with his fellow northern lords and ladies and attempting to bring about the downfall of the Boltons. And he's trying to get Barbara Dustin on his side, but he needs her. But she needs the actual evidence, too, that these boys are alive. Uh, for me, like I, I just remember <laughs> I, I'm from playing Skyrim. You know, if you take a, like a sword from like a crypt, uh, a ghost appears and you have to fight the ghost. So I could see that being not obvious inspiration for George since that game was released in 2011. This book was came out in 1998, but it is something that that interplays with fancy tropes altogether. Yeah, I like how it, it, it serves a couple different roles. It, it serves the nice role of, of brand, symbolizing brands, maturity and adulthood in this chapter, and then it plays into the kind of paranoia and intrigue when you get to A Dance with Dragons, where it feels like who's killing everyone? It feels like the castle itself is against us and the, the the very stones as Theon thinks and Clash are, are rising up against us. So George is just ringing that dry. You can tell how much he enjoys getting back to Winterfell and Dance, how much he enjoys writing this this setting again. And I, I love those chapters mm-hmm. for that reason. So speaking of returns to Winterfell later in the books, moving on to our Ethereum discussion portion of the episode. As you both were saying earlier, Bran is kind of the last Stark to set out on this hero's journey from the, the womb of Winterfell as so many of his family left in book one. 
So that opens up the question, obviously, of how and when do we think Bran returns to Winterfell in the books? He returned uh, over the course of uh, the season six and, and seven in the show. But how do we think it's going to go down in the book specifically? What do you think, Manu? Uh, probably sooner than I thought uh, after seeing season <laughs> eight, because I definitely thought there was a chance that Bran never left the cave, or at least a portion of the pie chart said he might have stayed up north for the entirety of the story. But I'm truly down with King Bran of Westeros, um, perhaps with the sprinkling of ruling from the gods eye thrown in there. But I do think looking back at the book chapters, I can see that logical pr- progression to King Bran. So I'm all on board with that. And I, so I do think he's southern bound in some sense in the long run as for the when i still think the wall falls near the end of the winds of winter um i just feel like there's other stuff that needs to happen first and bran likely makes it to winterfell or at least south of the wall before that happens um because i can see that kind of being something that prevents passage south in some way whether it's the others blocking him or something like that Um, And I do expect that Winterfell is where winter will fall. As you guys have said, I think a big battle will happen there. And I think Bran's presence will will be more than just through a tree or through the eyes of a raven. I think he will be there in some fashion. The how is where my footing is a little less sure. Um, All I can say is I do think Mira will make it there with him, whether as his escort, as in the show, or some other force helping both the eagles coming and picking them up and carrying them back. Uh, (laughs) Bran's relationship with the reeds is super important, and if one of my pet theories comes true, it could be the center of tragedy, Um, because I do think the others will make it past Winterfell, and Bran may have to literally break the neck uh, so to speak, to advance their advance, the others advance uh, to the southern kingdoms. Uh, something similar to what the children did to the arm of Dorne to sever Essos and Westeros when the first men were first coming. Um, this would, of course, require sacrificing Greywater Watch and the land of the Reeds, mm. um, and also but also maybe a physical manifestation of how the North actually separates from the Southern kingdoms to set up those two separate monarchs we did see in the show. So um, I think because of all that, I think assuming Jojen dies in the cave up North, I think Mira will be someone who tags along with Bran for a big chunk of it. And I do like the fact that she could be, you know, that heroic knight that fights Bran, you know, back home and all that. So um, that's kind of where I'm landing on the how, but I would not say I'm confident in that. I like that because it, it's creating actual boundaries for the North and the South. We break what Westeros and Essos were broken by the Arm, Arm of Dorne being broken and breaking the, the neck allows for the North to exist as an independent kingdom with an actual physical boundary to the South, to the South, to, to Westeros and the Six Kingdoms as a whole. I think uh, George has stated that hold the door will occur in the books as well. But he said it would be in a very different context than the one we saw in season six of the show. And something that stood out to me in rereading this chapter is that Bran and company voluntarily leave the safety of the darkness of the crypts to emerge into the light. So what I wonder is whether Bran will leave the safety of Bloodraven's cave, that an attack by the others slash whites won't be the triggering event for Bran, Mira, and Summer to leave Bloodraven's cave. And I do imagine Bloodraven will die much as Jojen will die, or my thinking is already paced. And the better figures have to pass on for the protagonists to proceed onto their her- hero, to proceed forward into their hero's journey. So I can imagine a scenario where Bloodraven and Jojen are dead, and Bran voluntarily decides to leave the cave because his destiny is to save Westeros. 
As to how your excellent question, it's a great one. I can provide a potential answer here. And let me introduce you to something we've referenced before, but it's the grand interconnected caves of Westeros theory. Yes, you've heard it here, probably not first. In A Storm of Swords, Ygritte will tell Jon about Gorn's Way, which is a mythical cave that passes beneath the wall. In A Dance with Dragons, Bran's skin changes Hodor and finds that the cave system is dense, with Leaf telling Leaf the, the child of the forest, telling Bran, men should not go wandering in this place. The river you hear is swift and black and flows down and down into a sunless sea. And there are passages that go even deeper, bottomless pits and sudden shafts, forgotten ways that lead to the very center of the earth. Even my people have not explored them all. We have lived here for a thousand, thousand of your man years. So... What I'm imagining is that Bran goes through the caves deep in the earth and finds Gorn's way and comes out on the other side of the wall and makes it back to Winterfell, which itself might be connected to the caves via the crypts. Remember, there's that whole thing about the, the layers of the crypts going deeper and deeper and deeper that are unexplored at this point in the story. And then Bran helps lead the defense of Winterfell from the Astroplane, defeats the others in some sort of spiritual context. I don't know how it's going to unfold ultimately, but I think that's to me, reads like the way that Bran returns to Winterfell. What say you, Emmett? I love that idea. I've always loved that idea of Bran using the tunnels to return to Winterfell because it, in the show, they explained this uh, via Uncle Benjen showing up, but like, it, you know, Bran barely made it overland to Blood Raven's cave in the first place. And that was with Cold Hands, the help of Cold Hands. If like Cold Hands and Blood Raven and all their other mystical helpers are dead, there's no way Bran and Mira are making it back over land, just in terms of just exposure. So making it, you know, underground, that's still fantastical and unrealistic in its own way, but you know, you can you can flood you can fudge the plausibility of it a bit more. It it links into what Egret was saying, it links into yeah, how the crypts are described as going forever deep. It's the same way the black cells in the Red Keep are described as there's always another layer below. And we see Tyrion being brought through those cells in the Storm of Swords, and I wonder if that was kind of George's like dry run for what he's going to do with Bran, like a whole chapter maybe down in the darkness, or part of a chapter down in the darkness, where it's just Bran describing how it feels down there, and trusting his third eye, getting them through, and then suddenly, like, he recognizes a stone face in the distance, like, that could be mm. so good. And it would also be great if, like, there's, you know, struggle in Winterfell, or political strife, or people are worried about the others, and then, like, Bran just, like, suddenly just emerges in their midst, <laughs> like the Stark they've been looking for this whole time. <laughs> you know, we talk about, like, how could King Bran be a thing? I think kind of, like, dramatic stage moments like that might be the sort of thing that makes it possible. And I also really love uh, what Manu was talking about, that he might have to use his magic to prevent the others from getting south, which would also, again, bolster the possibility of a King Bran. That might be how he ends up, as the south is grateful or just kind of awed by the, the 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 presence of this figure who saved them all from apocalypse but in the process he is to literally cut off his homeland from his new kingdom which yeah that's very bittersweet and then would set up why an independent north still makes sense because now there's just like a giant moat so okay <laughs> you're literally different continents now okay so in, independence making a bit more sense so i think that all that all comes together and i was with like menu i used to think that bran wasn't coming home he was going to direct things from the, the top of the world but I think if you really look at the kind of the, the mythic structure of a chapter like this and the way Bran is tied to, to life and death and rebirth, it makes the circle has to close. You know what I mean? He has to he has to come home and, and make good. Yeah, I think his powers technically you could have him rule from anywhere if you sure. really wanted to. But I think mm -hmm. George has emphasized ruling as part of being in the not being disconnected. And I think Bran ruling as some kind of mystical presence hovering over the actual body politic doesn't make as much sense as Bran being somewhat more physically connected into everything. 
Mm, I love all of those thoughts. And I think it's, I think ultimately the story is calling Bran to come home. I, th- I think Jochen says it really well about the Starks returning to Winterfell at, at the end of the story. And I think that would make for a part of the, the sweet part of the bittersweet ending that, that George has said that A Song of Ice and Fire is going to end on. So I, I love it. I think it's it's fantastic thinking that Bran is going to be returning to Winterfell. And I think it, it leads us as readers to a place where we can feel good we can feel emotions we can feel the emotions that we felt at the end of this chapter with Bran leaving him returning to Winterfell will likely evoke similar bittersweet yet hopeful feelings about the state of the world and about these characters that we we all love so much and I think that's terrific it's wonderful but I but I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis on A Clash of Kings Brand 7. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening, and thanks especially to Manu for joining us. I just put this note in at the very end, but plug your shit. Tell us where we can find you and on Twitter and your podcast and all the stuff that you're doing these days. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm currently <laughs> breaking down the Metal Gear Solid franchise on Podcast Sans Frontieres, something I think Nauticast fans will really enjoy if Metal Gear is up their alley. Uh, Thanks again for inviting me on. And more importantly, congratulations on wrapping up A Clash of Kings. And thank you for three years of excellent coverage. You two are very near and dear to the hearts of everyone in this community. And we appreciate you without end. May the gods watch over you into storm and onwards. Thank you, guys. That's real sweet, buddy. Thank you so much for saying that. That That was wonderful. Yeah, thank you so, so much, man. It's, it's a pleasure always having you on. We, You let us know when you want to come back for an Storm of Swords episode. We would love Absolutely. to have you as many times as you'd like to come on. So, yeah, you're a wonderful friend to us, and you mean a lot to both of us. And, yeah, it's good stuff. <sighs> okay, so, as always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PortQuentin on Twitter or at PortQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, wielder of Lady Forlorn. Lord Andrew, warden of the Dubai Sands. Lord Young of the Ghost Woods. Lady Mira Reed, wielder of Dark Sisters, slayer of Tinfoil. Sir Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune. Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, guardian of the Stonehaven, defender of Donatar Castle. Septon T-Bone, refined wrangler of Icy Arachnids. Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes. Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate. Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frost Fangs, Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler of the Patriarchy, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, 
Lord and Lord Peter, not Peter, drinker of strong wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you, folks, so very, very much for your support. It means the, the world to us, so thank you. So, join us next time in a few months' time for A Storm of Swords, the prologue from the perspective of uh, Chet. He's, he's, he's a great guy. Chet, Kip, Skip, something like Fucking that. Hate, I don't know. Some name like Todd, some name like that. And we'll be joined by special guest. Oh, that would be a spoiler. We'll let you hang on that one, chew on that one for a little bit. Who's going to be our special guest for that episode? So, hope you guys stick around. Emmett's got lots of great stuff planned in the coming months, and I am dearly indebted to all of you for sticking with us and listening to us, watching us in, on live streams. But more than anything, I'm indebted to Emmett for his friendship and for his uh, his love. And I dearly appreciate him. And I know that you guys all do too. So thank you to him. Thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you to our patrons. And we'll see you next time for Storm of Swords. <laughs>